I almost have two voices inside of me. There are days when I wake up, when I'm like, I'm the shit, I got this. I can help anybody solve anything. I can walk into any room. And then there are other days where that imposter syndrome voice is so loud. And I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. If anyone finds out how I really, you know, that that voice that I have in this meeting right now, if anyone hears that voice, I will never have a job anywhere else again, right? Both of those are unrealistic. Can I help every company solve every problem? No. Am I a complete imposter who doesn't know how to do anything? No. The way that I'm dealing with it, I think, is, is two things. One, I try to talk to my peers about the imposter syndrome. I will talk to friends that are in leadership roles or, you know, whether founders or executive leaders and say, hey, I had this. Have you ever had it? I think just having that conversation, willing to be vulnerable and have those conversations is so helpful to hear from friends who have had big exits as founders and or in the C-suite or leadership team tell me that they feel the same way sometimes is very comforting, right? And I think that helps that that imposter student. And then honestly, the other way that I do it is through therapy. I'm a big believer in therapy and I will talk to my therapist around like, hey, I feel this way. And we'll talk through what's rational, what's real and what's not. And I think that has helped me become a much better leader and manager. Get ready for the Product Tea with Leah, your fun-sized dose of business, tech, growth, and product chatter. I'm your host, Leah, and it's time to spill the tea. Welcome to the Product Tea, top of the growth morning. Today, I'm hosting a special guest. He's a mastermind at Paperspace who has a special knack for turning numbers into, well, bigger numbers. Did you ever see a revenue double like a magic trick or maybe lead rates shoot up like they drank six espresso shots? Co-founding We Did It wasn't just a statement of accomplishment, but a literal 400% boost in recurring revenue. But do not let those hefty achievements mislead you. He is a warrior, literally wrestling down challenges since his days at American University the sales wizard who turns every obstacle into a stepping stone, Ben Lamson. How are you doing this morning, Ben? I'm great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. How would you rate this introduction from zero to full UFC? Oh, full UFC. That was probably the best introduction I've ever had. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> That's very I'm good. flattered. Thank you so much. Can you introduce yourself to the fools that may not know you? Yeah, Ben Lamson. Formerly VP of Revenue at Paperspace. Uh, we were just recently acquired by DigitalOcean. So I've now taken over as uh, Director of Revenue at Paperspace as we remain independent for the foreseeable future. Um, based in Asheville, North Carolina. I have a beautiful wife and a seven-month-old son here. And yeah, I'm an entrepreneur and go-to-market leader that has a passion for all things growth and startups. That's pretty cool. So you acquired a lot of money recently and you have absolutely no more sleep. Is that a good summary of your life? A hundred percent. Yes. Yes. The no sleep is is real. The integration from, you know, a 45 person company into a 700 person company is seems like an endless task right now. Yeah. Well, you know, the good thing is, is if you never catch sleep, you also don't remember what has been happening during the day, like the bad and the good things. So, you know, it's yeah. just what it is. Yeah. Ben, what do people get wrong about you once they get to know you? This is a great question. I I thought a bit about this before coming on. I think I was actually just recently talking to a head of product a couple days ago. And one of the things he said to me was, you know, you don't seem like the typical VP of sales or head of sales guy. And I think that's really one of the things I I try to avoid. I think people that that's what people get wrong about me. My, My background says sales leader, you know, my, I started my career in tech as an account manager and sales manager and started my own company and was the VP of sales there. But I really don't feel like I fall into that archetype, that say VP of sales archetype. In fact, sometimes it feels like a dirty word. I feel like so many folks on the engineering or product side of an organization look at a VP of sales and it has this almost like frat boy, machismo, meathead, association to it. And I fashion myself really as someone who, you know, I've fallen into those roles, but it's not what lights me up. I'm more lit up by product and overall growth strategy than this idea of sell at all costs. 
So I would say that's kind of where I think people get me wrong and I don't blame them given my resume or my background having sales in a lot of my titles, but I certainly don't feel like the traditional sales leader. So two questions to you, because I feel like we've been lied to, right? So like every salesperson has a gong at home. Is that true? Do you have a gong at home? I do not have a gong and I actually don't like the gong thing that happens. I, I started my career at a company called Meltwater. And one thing Meltwater did really well was create an unbelievable company culture. But at Meltwater, every time anyone got a deal, you got up and you rang a bell. Yeah. Everybody hugged. And then the salesperson <laughs> told the story. <laughs> and, and again, if I were the founder of an organization, if I created that culture, I'd be very proud of being able to create a culture where everyone was so into it that as an outsider, I never really drank that Kool-Aid and that always just felt strange to me. Um, there is a there there is a there is an interesting kind of story to this. Well, I mean story, uh, more like a hypothesis on why it is actually necessary. So I feel like sales has been mistreated in some regards in the past, a little at least a little bit, in the sense that outbound sales, which was at some point just pretty much everything there was in a lot yep. of cases, also on tech. And this meant that you got rejected a lot. And that means you pick up the phone a hundred times, maybe you get through to two of them. And then one of them just like was just trying to be polite to you and just led you on and before any closing. So you were closing like one or 2%. And this is a frustrating experience. So I think these were also coping mechanisms to kind of deal with it. So I have a lot of sympathy for my sales colleagues. So the other thing is, have we been lied to, Ben? Because what are you doing as a salesperson in the product-led growth space? I heard that the product sells itself and that we don't need sales. Yeah, that is a a fantastic question. You know, I look at product-led sales as the backstop for flaws in a product. I have this thesis that ideally every product would be 100% PLG, 100% self-service in an ideal world. You could come and understand the product by reading the docs and, you know, intuitively using the UI or UX. But that's obviously unrealistic. And what product-led sales does in my opinion, is it adds a human element into that customer journey that just holds the customer's hands and acts as a backstop for any quote-unquote flaws in the product, things that aren't entirely intuitive in nature. And they're there as almost this guide to say, yep, well, this is how you do that. This is how this works. Oh, you want to do X, Y, Z? We don't do that yet, but let me chat with engineering and figure out if there's a way to build a workaround. And here's pricing. And ultimately, what you create is an order taker. You know, I think in PLS, if it's a really good structure, they're not salespeople, they're product guides. The product still does the selling, but they're there to walk you through. And then at the end of the day, say, you know, do you want to purchase this? If so, here's what the order would look like. It is an interesting problem because in some ways, what we try to do is we try to move more pipeline into the company, of course, right? So we want to close more. Otherwise, we would not do product-led sales in the first place, of course. But on the other hand, there is also this KPI where you try to not push more pipeline to sales, but like keep more people in the product, right? So like we want to have like the pricing page is a very good example. So a very common argument that you hear is like, oh, we cannot put the prices on uh, our pricing page. That just does not work. Why? Well, we want to design the buyer's experience. It's important that we have control over the buyer's experience. So this is less of a problem of sales. I think it's more like of a company culture that you're just afraid that if the customer sees something, that they make their own decisions and then judges you unfairly. But that's kind of like a you problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I feel like pricing pages are always a very contentious topic and quite a lot of fun yeah. <laughs> to talk around. I think this way that some folks try to solve for this, though, is, is really the wrong way, which is they then start asking the sales team to reach out to every new signup. And that's obviously the wrong way to handle that, right? The right way is to leverage the product utilization data, leverage what data you can bring in from Clearbit, and only be reaching out to the right folks. And at the same time, I think the way we reach out is so important. You know, with the team we built at Paperspace, the mandate was... You're there to just add value. You're not there to sell anything. You are everything, all of your messages around being helpful, not around pushing people to sign a contract. We had the fortunate of being a a utilization-based business that could be self-service. So I told my team, 
I don't care if they stay self-service or if they sign a contract, you're there to help them guide them in whatever's best for them. And I think that's where some people get it wrong is they want to push the sales, push the sales, which results in reaching out to everyone, trying to force people into contracts and plans that aren't actually in their best interest. This is one of my most favorite topics on the podcast because it always comes down to the same thing. It's about incentivization. So let me just ask you a question. Yeah. If you are founding a company that is below, I mean, not founding a company, every company that you found has zero traction, but like, let's say it is still beyond uh, or like below 2 million ARR or whatever. So relatively early, you're still trying to figure out your pipeline. You're still trying to build the kind of you know distribution model, everything around. What is your take on sales incentivization for early stage companies in the sense of like, should we give you a quota or should we not? Should you operate on love? What do you, what should you operate on then? Yeah. So because I came from a, an account manager, you know, account executive background, I'm really big in building plans that are in favor of the seller because they do have a hard job. Yeah. Do I think PLS is sales on easy mode? Yes. Mm -hmm but it's still hard. So I think this is a problem I actually faced at Paperspace. I rebuilt the entire go-to-market side of the business. And the way we incentivized the customer success team slash sales team was net new logos. So I didn't Mm -hmm. care if the user was spending $5 or $15,000 in their first month. They had a quota on just helping a user get across the finish line, Mm -hmm. right? Help them be a new customer. And then the other piece of their comp was just top line revenue. So they were incentivized to help users that came in through live chat, regardless of whether they ever got on a meeting with them, you know, answer their questions, help them understand the platform. We want, I want you as the CS team member to help everyone because everyone's going to contribute towards our top line revenue number. So we had a month over month growth target. If we hit that CS got their, uh, a portion of their variable comp. And then the other portion was just assisting that new logos because we believed NDR was going to be high enough that if we get someone into the product, they will spend more over time. So there's an inherent danger with structuring an incentivization like this, at least in my head. So I think you have to be super careful about... So net logos for companies that have some kind of cost to serve afterwards, right? So like it's not just like a take it or leave it deal. I have this danger of making concessions during the signature or like leading up to the signature. Yeah, yeah, we're going to bring this particular feature or we're going to do this for you or like then it's another wide label solution or whatever. And this can sometimes be be a little bit tricky if you're really early that you make concessions that will cost you a lot down the line. And it is a tricky topic. I know where some other people are standing on. The one thing where I feel like I have a very firm opinion is that you do need sales incentivization that is monetary in some ways, right? Like we've never managed to (laughs) run sales without it. It's just not possible, at least on the later stages. Yeah. And on the really early stage, I actually changed my opinion. Right now, I do really advise also to actually forego any compensation because if you just want to test out how far you can drive the pipeline like, you know, like with experimentation without loading on the long, the wrong logos, then it can actually be helpful to not give too much incentivization in that regard. Yeah. But it is an interesting topic because a lot of these PLG companies that are smaller and that are starting to grow beyond 5 million or whatever, they start to have this conversation. So hmm, how do we do sales? Like we have a couple of people now from B2B and inbound, right? So like everything, like something, something is starting to happen, but they don't know how to deal with these B2B clients. So it's not enough to just like expand your product from features, you know, like B2B features, and then they just close themselves unless they're quite small. That is good, but you still want to have someone in sales that goes out to them and starts to talk and, you know, uses them as kind of a feedback resource. Yeah. And this is the next question to you, maybe. How important do you think it is as a salesperson to also be an architect for the product in terms of like, hey, you know, like I'm gathering, I'm doing some solution engineering as well with the customers. And how do you avoid that this anecdotal evidence that we usually see from sales calls is being put into the correct context? Do you have yeah. some opinions on this? I, I do. I, so I made some mistakes, you know, specifically at Paperspace around the profile of the folks I was hiring. The first two folks I hired, I got inherently, I don't say I got lucky, but they had a quality that I'll I'll talk about here in a second that I wasn't actually screening for. The next two folks I hired didn't have that quality. I believe that in, in PLG PLS, because the product 
is the driver of acquisition, conversion, retention, all of that, the sales team or the, the, the account manager, CS team member has to have a, a high level of curiosity. They can't be in it just to sell, sell, sell. They have to be product obsessed. They have to into like want to intimately understand the product, the user, the problem they're solving, so they can take feedback on these calls, translate it based on what they know about the product roadmap and what they know about the industry and all of this, and then bring back the appropriate feedback to the product team. I wouldn't say that we cracked the nut on the most efficient way to capture this data and give it to mm-hmm. the product team at all. We did it really archaically with a, a Slack channel where we were just constantly filtering in ideas you know, that we would hear and leadership would try to distill those ideas down into what made sense based on our ICP or what we saw as the product roadmap or ultimate destination we wanted to take the company. I'm still trying to solve this problem from a more organizational perspective. I, I, I haven't tested it out in reality yet, but I do see some kind of space where you say that you start to embed, at least in the earlier stages, salespeople into a product team. Now, that's a very spicy topic. That's a very spicy topic. I but, like that. But I'm calling it product sales management. Heard it here first. And the principle is, is that the team itself is really building the new process that other salespeople then we'll start to kind of use, you know? Yeah. And if you think about it in this way, if you do product-led sales, so you're starting to measure what your accounts are doing and your product, and then you, to wait for, you wait for them to be activated, and then you surface this data to salespeople, there's a lot of internal tooling that you have to configure and also to build. Now, why wouldn't I have one of my primary customers, which is a salesperson or anyone that needs this kind of data inside of the team, <laughs> to actually guide the development of this. Like they probably do not know SQL. They know <laughs> they know sales qualified leads, <laughs> but yeah. they don't know the language SQL. So if I have to build dashboards, you know, and reports for them, why do I not have them right now in my team? And then together with that, also have the team at least passively observing sales calls because if your team member is also in them, you know, like there's a very close collaboration going on there. So yeah. this is something that I'm actually trying to figure out. And I think that is quite interesting because I feel like sales is the one function that we have dramatically underserved when it comes to saying what's been happening in product. Yeah. Because sales is not from the devil. And if you do empower them, it works really, 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 really well. And there's a reason why no PLG company that is above 5 million does have salespeople. There's a reason for it. No. Yeah. So I think that's brilliant. What I'm hearing you say is essentially we need to continue to work on breaking down the silos that exist between these teams. I love that idea. I'm going to liberate that idea from you and go go for it. Try to use that someplace. <laughs> go for it. Go for yeah. it. So the main hypothesis is here is that everyone becomes more efficient through the yeah. AI and so forth, right? So like, but I do also demand, I can also tell you from my role as an executive, I need people, product managers, engineers, and everyone else to understand how sales works. They don't need to be salespeople. It's not what I mean. But I think an interesting step that I had to do in my career, so let's say you want to become a C-level of something like CRO or CPO, like product manager to CPO, right? So like, what is the path there? It was a very fundamental step in your career ladder, I feel where you have to start to understand what other functions in your company do. Yeah. And you start to stop representing your function, but rather just like, you know, you're in the C level with a speciality in product. And that is a different function than being just a sales leader or a product leader. Yeah. And what you need to do for this is you need to learn how and what is important for marketing. You need to learn and know what is important for for sales and for other company functions or finance, whatever it is. So you, it's it's going to be very interesting. And I think this movement is now moving down into the operative teams. And that's why I also want them to understand what others are doing. I don't accept this kind of finger yeah. pointing like, oh, what is sales doing? What is marketing doing? Yeah. So what really what I'm hearing you say is the product team needs to better understand the customer journey. And the customer journey isn't just through the product. It is through, if you have a sales team yep. layered in, the customer is journeying through experience with sales. And product sales. needs to understand what that customer yep. journey is like when they're interacting with sales. Exactly. The salesperson, and here's the, here's the spicy take, the salesperson itself may be on your payroll, 
but they're actually part of the product. Yeah. This is kind of like the mind yeah. shift that I feel like people really need to get done. So yeah. it's going to be interesting. Hey, you know, like we will see what happens. So, uh, yeah. To, to just further validate what you're saying, you know, one of the things that I did at Paperspace early, and I don't think this is controversial, I think we're seeing a lot more of this, is I, I said, you know, a couple months into the role, I need to own support as well. I can't just own customer success sales. I need to own the support org. And the thought was, we are an engineering or developer tool platform, right? We, we sell infrastructure and we're self-service. And that means that oftentimes the first interaction a user would have with anyone at Paperspace would be with a member of support. Mm-hmm. And if that user journey means their first touch point is with a member of support, I can't have a silo between support and sales and customer success. Yeah. We broke that silo down. And one of the things I'm, I'm really proud of is is in the following 12 months after we broke that silo down, we re- reworked the, the tech stack. Support ended up generating 13% of what I would call like pre-PQLs, 13% mm-hmm. of revenue that the CS team closed. And this was based on a user not becoming a PQL yet, but saying something to support that would indicate they would become a PQL. Like in our case, hey, I need to spin up 30 VMs. Can I increase my quota? Yeah. Right? If they did that, they would become a pre-PQL, but they're saying to support, they want to do that, right? So then support flags them and says, hey, CS, you should go talk to this person. So I think it's a very similar thing is like, how can you break these silos down so everyone understands the full user journey and can add value throughout that journey? Yeah, I don't know, 100%. And I think that it's funny because we had some discussions on when ChatGPT started to break, right? So like, and everybody had their hysteria hat on and like, oh my God, everybody's losing their jobs. I think one of the loudest voices that you heard was, and also to some degree, correct, customer success and support, but more likely support, but you know, like this low level support of trying to support people with, I don't know, like third level, whatever. But I feel like, it's the other way around. Like everybody has to learn all the functions. Everybody has to become kind of like an entrepreneur because in the end, the one thing that breaks the camel's back for bigger companies is that you have to kind of have these silos. You have to compartmentalize people into functions. Why do we have to do this? Because we love our titles. Sure. And we love to be attributed to some kind of function so we can say what we are specialists in. But that's not how an efficient company works. Why do we know this? Because we tried for 10, 20 years to make matrix organizations work. Clearly does not work, at least not as a general concept for every company. And then we tried to fix it with cross-functional teams. Now, cross-functional teams are already a step up because you have product, you have engineers, you have designers, everybody's kind of working together. But now people like me are also saying like, no, 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 we need to have even more context from the entire company. And this kind of bandwidth and space in your head that this takes is very, very hard to manage for big companies. So as soon as you become bigger, you this challenge becomes harder and harder and harder. But this is also why I find it very fascinating. You know, like scaling companies is a difficult, very, very finicky thing. Yeah. I just listened to the episode with Shaney and she said something yeah. where I felt so seen. And what she said was coming from a a smaller organization and going to a bigger organization, at a smaller org, she spent most of her time executing ideas. And at a bigger org, she spent most of her time selling ideas. And I've seen that immediately in the acquisition of paper space into digital ocean, how there's no operating fast and loose and shooting from the hip and running through experiments in the same way there was at paper space because of the, the number of stakeholders and what's at stake of an organization of that magnitude. So I wonder, in order to implement what we're talking about here, can you pivot late? You know, can you be a 700, 800 person organization and pivot to this? Or do you have to have inherently built it into your DNA from the beginning? The pivot is extremely hard and extremely expensive. Mm. I like to believe that you can, because otherwise I would not have a job at all. <laughs> so that would not be good. <laughs> so maybe I have to edit this out, but maybe not. So. I think the interesting thing that you said is like, so as you start to grow, you have to kind of sell ideas. It's right. Like that's what you said. Yeah. I find this a very interesting thought. My experience has been that as you scale in product maturity, not necessarily in headcount, but let's just say like in product maturity. And what I mean with that is as you go along on your journey, usually the more obvious things are kind of getting done. Right. So like they're kind of done at some point. Right. Mm-hmm. So like the easy, the, 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 the obvious stuff, you know, like the stuff that just burns very obviously, that kind of stuff is getting done. 
as you have a more mature product and you're also getting more successful, things move slowly, slowly, slowly to the optimization side where you just have to also maintain what you have already done. That also goes for your growth, yada, yada, yada. The amount of people in a room with this increasing maturity of product that think that they are talking about the same thing when they're in the same room is dramatically increasing while in reality it is actually they're completely misaligned. The amount of alignment that you have to do in a company as a senior exec, even in smaller companies, I would say even in smaller companies, is sometimes to an absolutely comical level. And I'm not sure whether it's easier to do this in person or whether this is a hybrid thing that I don't know why it happens. But if people ask me what you do as an executive (laughs) during the day, it's about 90% alignment. It's about talking to people making sure that nobody misunderstood something that has been said somewhere because I might have said something that I didn't, don't even remember. And then someone else just, you know, said, oh, Leah said, and now it becomes kind of like, you know, like it's becoming one of the 10 commandments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a lot of fun, but yeah, it is not as organized as people make it out to be. And this is an interesting problem that I really feel like, yeah, we need to solve it. I don't have a good solution. It's just like, I'm just talking a lot all day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Let me just ask you a more generic question, because I know you have some opinions on this. When we talk about startups and the entire startup space, so everything has been shaken around. Money is not around anymore, or if it is around, it's being given different. Unless you have AI in your product, you're not getting a a single dollar. What is wrong with our startup scene nowadays, in your opinion? Yeah. The issue I see right now is, and this this happened during the gold rush of right before this little mini VC recession, and it's happening now within the AI gold rush, is that too many founders were trying to solve for dilution. And they took on valuations that were just so insane that I fear they won't grow into them. And I think that screws over a lot of leadership that is looking to land at these, you know, quote unquote, blue chip startups. They look blue chip because of what they've raised. They may even have an amazing product, but I I fear that they don't grow into these valuations. And therefore, uh, a lot of folks' equity becomes, you know, near worthless, especially for those folks that jump ship early after options have vested and they want to exercise those options. I think we're in a dangerous time or, you know, worse they take a, a loan from the company to exercise those options. And then those options go on to become worth less than what they exercised at. Oh. That's my big fear right now. I'm still seeing AI startups raise 20 million at 100 you know, million post, and they have zero dollars of revenue. No. Um, that's scary. It is. And I think it has a little bit to do with these aspirations. So maybe also for the listeners, because most of them are European companies, a blue chip company is a very solid, very reliable brand that is in the market, like IBM, Coca-Cola, that kind of stuff. Right. And I feel like you don't even have to go this far. Like it's this inherent arbitrary border of unless you have nine zeros after a one, if you are a billion, right, if you have this billion worth. This was the only thing that was talked about. What I really enjoy right now in the market is that the voices, and this is purely anecdotal, none of this is backed by anything, but anecdotally, I feel like there's a lot of upwind right now, again, for startups that are either bootstrapped and do not take on any VC money. So they do more with less because there is also some inherent uh, benefit to them. Or startups that are already cash positive and still load up on VC money just to grow faster, which was actually the original intent. Because what we were usually talking about is that, or like what you were talking about, is that back in the days, these companies were not cash positive. That means they ran at a loss and just with the future gains at some point, eventually they're just going to come out, right? That's like they have this exit velocity that is extremely crazy. But this risk profile is inherently dangerous. It's like it's risk on top of risk on top of risk. And it is ludicrous looking back, right? It's always easy to obviously to criticize. But it is interesting if you were raising at an absolutely ridiculous valuation, you kind of signed off on something that gets you now into hot water because you will not reach this again, this valuation. And as you said, that means you have to give away more shares 
to just maintain the company because you are still probably not cash positive. So you don't make more money than you spend. And that is an interesting conundrum. I have a lot of sympathy with these founders. I can understand. We were all in this market, you know, like when everybody was like, oh my God, we need to invest into everything. Yeah. And there was just no end in sight. I remember particularly that HubSpot was tank. Like I'm investing in HubSpot. My HubSpot stock was tanking from 830, I think, to into the 200s. And it was not a good week for me at all. But yeah, we were all in it. So yeah. yeah. One of the things that influenced me the most was seeing firsthand from two close friends. And I, you know, obviously won't reveal any names here, but one friend had a $250 million exit. Mm -hmm. And the other friend had a $40 million exit. And the friend who had a $40 million exit took home twice as much cash as the founder and friend who had a $250 million exit. And I think that this is something that we're not coaching first-time founders on enough of understanding what comes with these valuations and it comes with raising three, four rounds of funding. You feel elated because you got written up in TechCrunch. The friend who had a $250 million exit written up in TechCrunch several times. The friend who had a $40 million exit never written up at TechCrunch once, but you know, yep. walked away with twice as much cash. You know, And I think that's something that we could do better. I think you know, accelerators could do a better job of educating first-time founders on what's going to come with these valuations, these rounds of funding. So this is a very good point. I like this take. So I think we have a little bit of an education problem in the market in general on how what we celebrate and what we don't celebrate. So like we celebrate these numbers in terms of what is the total sale value? That's what you were talking about, right? So like for how much money did the company sell, there are 51% of shares or 100%, whatever the deal is. Yep. And I don't know whether people really understand who are not in the space because not everybody's an angel investor, not everybody works for a VC, not everybody's a salesperson because salespeople usually have a good understanding of this for some reason. I don't know why, but that is usually because maybe they're also dealing with money every day. But it is crazy with how little money that you can actually walk away. I've been in deals where the buyout price is close to 100 million and the founders had less than 1% left in the end. Yeah. And that's just what happens. It can happen that the founders have less than their C-level. And it's possible. Yeah. And that does happen. And it's just because of how these deals are structured and because you just do not want to let go of a company that, of course, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like you also don't want to let go of something that you were running for this long. But it is fascinating how different this entire situation is also in Europe versus the US. I don't know whether you're familiar with this, but like in Europe, there's a lot of universities that have their fingers in very early start startups. And they take sometimes something as much as 30% of the entire equity stake, Oof. which is like, it doesn't sound like a lot because you still owe like two thirds of the company, right? But like this sets you up for failure yeah. in future funding rounds because everybody who's starting to invest is looking at this and says like, why do they own 30% of your stuff when they did not even contribute that much, right? So yep. like sometimes it's just a tech stack or like some code that you're not even using anymore or whatever. So there are a lot of things that are going wrong in the startup space. But uh, again, I have a lot of, I have a lot of compassion for this because it's very easy to start a company and not think about this. And then you make a stupid mistake. Yeah. I made stupid mistakes as well with other founders, you know, and uh, yeah. I could write a book about this. <laughs> yeah. And I think if you've been on the founder or founding team side, it's a lot easier to have that compassion. I think, you know, Alexa probably, I, I saw a clip, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to listen to the entire episode um, when she was on a couple of weeks ago, but she talks about how lonely it is. And it, it, it is incredibly yeah. hard and incredible incredibly lonely to start a company. And it takes a certain amount of courage and almost naivety, in my opinion, the naivety to have the confidence that you can take something that didn't exist and turn it into something that does exist. And then hopefully one day make millions and millions of dollars, you know, or, or generate millions and millions of dollars of revenue, you know? So I think it's important to have that compassion, but I also at the same time think that's the reason why I want to see more angel investors, more accelerators no. help these early stage founders understand what it means to take other people's money. A couple months ago, when this drama went down with the Silicon Valley Bank, there was this, I did a mistake there, right? So like what I did is I went on Twitter. Twitter it used to be this company that is now called X. I'm not sure whether people remember. Yeah. It's just like, you know, it was a very necessary rebrand. One of the things that really pissed me off is because what you're getting there is a really, you get an almost a very authentic way of like how people are thinking about entrepreneurs and startup founders. So. There were a lot of companies 
that had a lot of their VC money, investment money, also their own money, you know, they had it stored at this bank. And when it wasn't clear whether most of the deposits would be saved or not, and then also some of them were doing a bank run and so forth, you saw a lot of comments on Twitter about, well, that's their fault if they did not check, you know, like the bank, like an entire due diligence and so forth. And it pissed me off so much because mm-hmm. if you are running a startup, this is the you doing the diligence on a bank where there are other big names, like other funds, David Sachs sitting there also like having everything, all of his startups there and so forth. And you expect the startup founder to just go into the bank and say like, hello, I would like to do a due diligence on you. I don't have a lot of money, like in your terms, but uh, I would like to do it full due diligence. This is just lunacy. And it's insane. Just, it's not fair. I, insane. And, and I, I, would, I would even take it a step further. You know, there was obviously this this crunch time when payroll wasn't going to be met because of the funds being locked up. And I saw zero compassion for the 23-year-old marketing manager at a startup who wasn't going to get paid that Tuesday or Thursday. And I said the same thing. So you're telling me now that that 23-year-old fresh graduate marketing manager should have done due diligence on where the startup that they decided to go work at is banking. And that's, you're right, that's just insanity. I could, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on the SB Bank. No, no, we don't have to. uh, Yeah. (laughs) No, but like you say something really interesting because there's a fundamental difference, again, from the US to the European market. And that is in Europe, we tend to have better protections for employees, you know, like, so like if something does go wrong, you have unemployment insurance in a lot of countries. But most importantly, you are protected from, like if you give notice, right? Like it takes months for you usually like to just go. So for instance, in Switzerland, it's very common that if you've worked at a company for two years, there's like a three months cancellation period. Yeah. It's very, very normal, right? Yeah. Every American that I'm telling this is like, what? Why would yeah. you do this? And I'm yeah. just like, yeah, that's just how things are here. So we also structure our products and the companies around this because we know, hey, if you're going in three months, we have enough time to find a successor maybe potentially and then also hand off work. In the US, for my dear listeners here, if you have a two weeks notice, that's probably the standard, right? So like yeah. the moment you drop your notice, you're probably gone. And that also means conversely, if your company folds for whatever reason, whether this is inflicted by you or not, it may be that you're just not paying your rent in the next week. And then you also don't have that good unemployment insurance and so forth. So as innovation friendly it is in the United States, this is one thing that I enjoy better in Europe, I have to say. And then also, like, I mean, five weeks of holidays, you know? Yeah. <laughs> there is just some regulation. There's just some regulation that protects you a little bit better. And we're also yeah. willing to give off more from our salary in this regard. But just to stand there and have the audacity to say, like, yeah, well, it's their kind of problem. You know, like, should we just do, do, should we do due diligence on everything? Should we not trust anything everywhere? Yeah. Like, if somebody says, oh, you know, like... This vegetable is coming from a, I don't know, some kind of farm. Should I go to the farm and check whether it was planted there? Yeah. I find that I, I found that very ridiculous. And uh, yeah, like, you know, people dancing on graves, basically. So, yep, 100%. I, I feel the exact same way. Okay, so let's maybe talk about something that I find quite interesting. And I know that you're also a little bit of an aficionado around it. And, and that is jobs to be done. I find that interesting because... I think you're the first self-proclaimed salesperson that is dealing with jobs to be done. Can you maybe also explain to the audience really quick, like what do you understand with jobs to be done? And what is the relevance now to our topic here today with uh, startups? Yeah, so jobs to be done is essentially a, a framework to help predict innovation or help understand why a customer chooses a particular product. And at the foundation, the thesis is that um, customers hire products to do a job. One of my favorite quotes, I think, I think it's the CEO of, or the former founder of, of Maybelline, but he said, you know, in the factory, we make makeup, but in the drugstore, we sell hope. And it was the idea that people, men or women, you know, aren't buying makeup because they like makeup. They buy makeup because of how it makes them feel when they go out in public or when they're walking around with the makeup on. And I think that really distills down the idea of, of jobs to be done. It's, you know, the other one is, you know, people don't want a, a, a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole, right? So I, yeah, yes, I've got a, a sales background, but again, this is that whole thing of what do people get wrong about me? My big passion is for product. 
I also like revenue. So I think that's where the whole overlap comes in, right? Is that that overlap between product and revenue results in a sales guy who likes to be in all of the PM meetings. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I don't even know how I discovered JobSpeed. I was thinking about that before this podcast. I think maybe I just came across a Tony Olwick video on YouTube once. And then I was hooked, went deep down the rabbit hole on jobs to be done. You know, I've taken a, a four-day workshop with Stratagen. I've read several books, watched, watched yeah. all the Clay Christians and stuff. I just find it so fascinating. And to me, it's this, it's an actual formula for, you know, understanding how to build better products. There's an interesting uh, story in there as well. Like, so I discovered jobs to be done as, I mean, I used to be at the start of my career, I used to be a UX researcher or a UX engineer in that sense, right? So like, it was very, very close to me as well, like, you know, to understand it from this perspective. I also found it through Clayton Christensen and his milkshake. Yeah. I think it was the milkshake video even uh, yeah. at some point. Like, it was very, very old. And the interesting bit is you start to also learn about the, the innovator's dilemma and mm-hmm. all of those kinds of stuff. And then you start to learn well, there are kind of two schools of jobs to be done. And I was relatively new to this entire topic. And one of them was between, or still is, I don't know. I, I don't know where they are right now, but like I met both of them. So one of them was like more on the side of Bob Moesta and the other one was more on the side of Tony Olwick. Yep. And what you were talking about was from the side of Tony Olwick, where yeah. he has an interesting framework about outcome-driven innovation. I tried to explain it in a minute on a different podcast. and <laughs> I have a very exciting <laughs> clip about it. <laughs> But it is an interesting thing. If you have the need in a company to validate a hundred features, let's just say some kind of arbitrary number. So like I want to know whether a hundred features will land or like which ones of those are landing more likely than others with our customers, then we can do this over an outcome-driven innovation framework. I don't want to get too much now into detail on what this is, but basically what we're trying to figure out is the opportunity between how good can people do something and how important is it to them. And this kind of gap is the opportunity that we have, and we can validate this on a big uh, amount of people. Except this is an extremely expensive thing. We also talked about this in the pre-talk. So you said you did a four-hour, four-day, sorry, four-day workshop with the company and so forth. And so you're talking about how to bring this into smaller startups that might not have the money for like the entire thing, you know? Yeah. Can you maybe talk about this a little bit? So if I could crack how to bring that into smaller startups, uh, I'd probably have a company with a really high valuation right now because I think the value that you could create for early stage or growth stage startups would be immense. You know, for those that don't know, a part of outcome-driven innovation is, is you need to survey a large, large number of users or potential users or customers. And these surveys can last up to, you know, 20 to 45 minutes. And the only way to get someone to sit through a survey of that length is to compensate them with something. And that's the piece that becomes extremely expensive. There's a lot of work you need to do before those surveys, but just the surveys alone are a large portion of the overall expense to run a outcome-driven innovation process around your product. But what I think about when I think about like how startups can leverage jobs to be done is I really take a step back and I say, okay, in the strategy Tony Olwick process, there's this idea of the, the job map that breaks down every portion of a job and every job fits into this job map. And I found that if you can walk through a job map and, and essentially take some guesses around what you think users are doing in each stage of a job map, you can use what you've walked away with to influence your marketing and influence the way that your sales team is talking to customers and the features that they're highlighting. This is never going to be as as impactful as running the full ODI process, but I do think it's a, a new lens in which to think about sales and marketing through the jobs to be done process. So maybe to make this a little bit more graspable for people who are listening, I'm just going to try it again anyways. So let's say you have a lawnmower at home and this is your lawnmower and you cut the grass with it, right? So like that's the functional description of what it is. We have specific factors on whether we think that something is successful in our lives. So we attach something to it 
that says like, okay, this is a success or this is a good thing or it's a bad thing. And usually you can actually measure these things. For instance, whether something is loud or whether it is quiet, right? So like there's more noise or there's less noise. Whether it's fast, whether it's slow, that kind of stuff. So the theory goes as far as if I ask you how important it is for you, how loud that your lawnmower is or how quiet it is, and how good your current tool that you have, so the current lawnmower actually is, then this kind of difference can be plotted onto a very good overview among other factors about this product that can be put into relation to each other. And then I can actually see which ones are the most underserved. So we're looking at this from two dimensions. One of them is like, how important is something to you? And that is very classical market research. But then the second thing, which is the genius thing, is like you also ask, like, how good can you do this right now? Mm-hmm. And mapping this is basically what you were just talking about. I don't think you need a 24-minute survey, by the way. Like we did something similar at SmallPDF. I mean, we had a lot of users, right? So like we had 50 million yeah. monthly active users to play with. But all you need is you need about 100 responses per question that you want to validate. And I still think that even if you have 10 to 15 questions per business, that you want to have at least evaluated on what is important to the customers that can be extremely valuable. So like just like drilling down the amount of questions that you want to have answered. So for instance, let me just give you a very practical example. You have a tech product or like you have Figma or whatever, and you want to know how important it is to people that they can comment on their documents or any function. Now, there is some kind of limit on the quantitative data that where you can figure out how important it is. Sure. I mean, if people are using it more, then it's probably more important or not. But like, there is still another dimension on asking people rather than just observing what they do over quantitative data. And if this is, for some reason, a critical business question, whether collaboration is important or not, then you should survey it, whether it is adequately served also from your product. Because if your customers, if you ask your customers, right, we're not just asking the market, we're also asking our own customers. Because if your customers tell you it is important and it's not well served, then you might have a feature that a lot of people are using, but they hate it. And that is very possible, even though it sounds very, very illogical. Like, take the wind wipers in a Tesla. I keep shitting on the Tesla wind wipers. (laughs) You know, I don't know why. Every time it rains, I have to use them. I'm using them a lot. If you go into the engagement data, you know, like you will see that I use the wind wipers a lot, but I don't like how they are in the interface and how you actually activate them. So this is a very good example and you can do this across the line. Using this as a secret weapon quite a lot with my advising uh, clients, by the way. I think it's a fantastic one. Yeah, and and I think one piece that that I didn't uh, that we didn't cover yet uh, that is so critical too is not just how those questions are being answered, but digging into the user, the customer, their profile in those answers, you know? So we did a jobs to be done workshop at paper space that actually helped us say, you know what, we're, we shouldn't be targeting data scientists. We need to be targeting engineers. There's a huge, no. that shift really impacted, you know, our acquisition and retention rates and helped us understand who we need to market towards, who we need to be talking to, and then helped us further define our PQLs based on signup data. You know, so I think that's another way that startups need to be thinking about jobs to be done is not just from the, what tweak can I make to the product, but who should I be targeting? Is it the enterprise? Is it the early stage startup? Is it the growth stage startup? So on and so forth. This is an extremely important point. You just added a lot of quality to my explanation. So (laughs) thank you for that. Because if you do not do that, what you just described, then you're essentially asking a lot of different people on their opinions and you get answers that you do not want to have. So only talking to your ICPs is actually sometimes the difference between having a good survey and one that just has noise, right? So like data all over the place. Because if you ask gardeners, they will answer the question whether uh, a lawnmower has to be loud or quiet different than if you ask cooks. Well, one group doesn't need your product that much, so it's not going to be that important and it's not on top of their mind that much. So this is a very, very... Difficult and also important topic in that sense. It does not solve anything about pricing, which I also find a very interesting thing. But maybe we can extend on this side. If you had to, let's say you had to start a new company and with everything that you know, also from paper space, you would validate all of this, like all your features are being, you know, like evaluated in the way that we just talked about. And you have a good idea on what you want to build. And let's say it is a company that sells a product around $5,000, something like this. This is just like the initial idea that you had. 
do you have some kind of process? Because now you're in a segment that is very interesting. It could close itself, right? So oversell stuff. It could yeah. be still, still on the upper yeah, level. Yeah. It could, but you're not quite sure. How do you figure out pricing yourself? I know we didn't talk about this, but maybe you have some interesting ideas on oh. like, how do you determine your first, your, your initial price points? Yeah. So this is a, a topic that brings me a lot of anxiety. Pricing theory in general is not something I would say I feel amazingly comfortable in. Yeah. In actuality, at least in my experience, and I'm sure there's a ton of people that are far better at this than me. It's just a lot of experimentation. And I hate this because I think good PLG is transparent pricing, self-service, PLG, PLS, yeah. give me your pricing, get me into the product as quickly as possible. I want to get there as fast as possible. Before you're there, it's a lot of, would you pay this? It's a lot of throwing numbers at customers that you're talking to and holding their hand and seeing if they bite, understanding if the pain is great enough that they would pay X no. to solve it. It's the portion of the process that is entire. It's, it's a necessary evil, but it's not one that I love because I want to get to the place where I can just give you transparent pricing. I'm at the stage in my, in my career, in my life, where if I'm evaluating a tool and, and it doesn't have pricing on it, there's a very low probability I'm going to click through and, and try to talk to anyone or sign up. So I want to get to that stage. If I'm on the other side of the table, I want to get there as quick as possible. But prior to that, I feel like it's just a lot of experimentation, seeing what sticks. And yeah. I think also looking at what similar organizations, like let me take shortcuts by looking at what similar organizations, similar companies in similar spaces are doing. I mean, that's really what we did at Paper Spaces. We looked at folks like GitHub, uh, you know, for modeling our pricing page for our MLOps platform and said, you know what? They're huge. They figured it out. Let's take some shortcuts by trying to model our pricing after them. I 100% agree with this. And it's interesting because I always tell people not to look at competitors when we talk about features, but when it comes to pricing and you need to establish some kind of baseline. Yeah. I used to be trying to, I don't know how you say, like I struggled around back in the days with Van Westendorp price analysis and you know, like price, price sensitivity surveys and you try to figure out on a theoretical basis. My advice is always like, if you can, exactly what you said, like try to experiment around on this stuff. And the lower you put your price and the more you expose it to free users, and that's another big advantage that we have from PLG, the more people you have, the way you can actually experiment around. If you have a baseline that is not good, that's still a baseline that you can experiment on, right? So like, let's say you have a thousand mm -hmm. users and you're only converting, I don't know, 10. That's yeah. not a good conversion rate in B2B. That's true. But like, why do not more people convert? Is it because the targeting is bad? Is it because the price is too high or too low? We tend to just adjust the price a little bit too fast, I feel like, sometimes without also looking at the other problems. But pricing is not a fun topic. It no. definitely <laughs> isn't. But you want to make it easier for yourself by having something to experiment on. And the yeah. other thing is also for, like, for sales pipeline as well. I feel like if you start to not talk to leads that are a little bit below your ACV that you want to target, you may give up a really a good opportunity to figure out why these people even landed in your pipeline, you know, yeah. in the first place. So like, why do you have people like this and so forth? You can always optimize afterwards upwards. And that's very, very natural, right? So like we increased our conversion efficiency in, at small PDF in two years by 90%. And while you're growing at the same time, and all of this has a compounding effect, but it is a long, you know, like this is a long journey. It takes time. At the start, you will be inefficient. But finding product market fit in the end is nothing else than we need to reach some kind of base efficiency that can be scaled. It will not be perfect. It will never be perfect. But as you start to expand on your value, you can also charge more. And yep. then it starts to become um, a little bit better. And, and, yeah, and one, one thing you said that was really interesting in there that, that I think is really important for folks to take away is, is the PLG is a, can, can really assist in this research. If you have something that you can give away for extremely, you know, if you, if you have something you can give away for free, right, then you're going to gather more users, especially if that thing has value, you're going to gather more users. And the more users you have, the more folks you have to go out and talk to and experiment with. And I think that's a lot easier than putting up a contact sales, here's my pricing page, and yeah. you have to talk to a salesperson to get through the gate to, in order to start using something. And, and I think that, that's yeah. the big problem with sales-led growth is this whole model of, hey, I'm the salesperson, Leah, I promise you, sign this contract. And on the other side of this contract, all of your problems are solved. You're going to get everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where the sales guy trust. gets the bad yeah. rap, right? Is like, I promise, yeah. this is great. It's going to work. 
just spend, you know, two thousand dollars a month. Never had a deal like this before in your life, Ben. (laughs) It's going to be the best thing. It's going to change your life. So maybe let's go to our last topic because I really wanted to talk to to you about this, and I find this interesting because you said that you know, like, it's not your favorite topic. I had a lot of not favorite topics in my career as well. Yeah, and my usual method of engagement was to just pretend that I know and that I didn't know. And this was largely also because of underlying insecurities about if you're an expert, you need to know everything, right? Like you need to pretend that you know everything. And I already did this at the very young age of 25. I already started to be absolutely insufferable to people. You said that you have a couple of words to say on this topic. How are you dealing with your own insecurities at this stage? You've done quite a few things now in your entrepreneur life. We're both not at the top of Mount Everest. We're both not at the bottom. Where do you see yourself right now? And how do you deal with it maybe also in in regards where you are right now? Where I see myself as an interesting, I see myself in a position to help a lot of organizations solve a certain set of problems that I have that I can, and the reason I can help them solve them is because I've gone, I've, I've seen enough reps. I've had the repetition of solving those. But what you're, you know, what you're also really asking is around the insecurities is I almost have two voices inside of me. There are days when I wake up, when I'm like, I'm the shit, I got this. I can help anybody solve anything. I can walk into any room. And then there are other days where that imposter syndrome voice is so loud. And I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. If anyone finds out, how I really, you know, that, that voice that I have in this meeting right now, if anyone hears that voice, I will never have a job anywhere else again. Right. Both of those are unrealistic. Can I help every company solve every problem? No. Am I a complete imposter who doesn't know how to do anything? No. The way that I'm dealing with it, I think is, is two things. One, I try to talk to my peers about the imposter syndrome. I will talk to friends that are in leadership roles or, you know, other founders or executive leaders and say, hey, I had this. Have you ever had it? I think just having that conversation, willing to be vulnerable and have those conversations is so helpful to hear from friends who have had big exits as founders and or in the C-suite or leadership team tell me that they feel the same way sometimes is very comforting, right? And I think that helps that that imposter student. And then honestly, the other way that I do it is through therapy. I'm a big believer in therapy and I will talk to my therapist around like, hey, I feel this way. And we'll talk through what's rational, what's real and what's not. And I think that has helped me become a much better leader and manager. This earlier in career, I was good at, you know, I was good at product vision and, and we did it, you know, helping direct the product. I was good at sales I was a fucking terrible manager, just God awful in hindsight. And so much Mm -hmm. of that came from my insecurities and having to be right. And, you know, those insecurities driving an impatience in me, but it wasn't through time of just being around. It was through getting exposure to really good leaders that I learned from and it was ex- through being vulnerable with my peers and then also through going to therapy and just being like, hey, this is an issue I want to solve for. Yeah. And that's that's really how I've dealt with these things. They're certainly not solved. Like I said, I still have days where I'm in rooms where I'm just going like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And if they find out that I don't know what I'm doing, then this is over. And then there are days where you know I feel like I'm on top of the world. Yeah, this is an interesting thing to me as well, because sometimes the material reality does not change. It's just like how you got up out of the bed in the morning and then you just feel like this day is just not going to get good. And everything you see that day is just like objectively feeling like it's bad. I really like this frame of thinking in the sense of, I don't remember where I heard it or from whom I heard it, but insecurities like this are mainly an emotional response to something else, right? So like, this is an emotion. And what are emotions characteristically, I think I also heard this in therapy. This is very possible. So also, yeah, Leia goes also to therapy. It's not, it's a good thing. Everybody should. There are two fundamental things to emotions. And the first one is they always feel worse than reality is. Yeah. So there's a reason for this as well, right? So like emotional responses are just like short summaries of very complex thinking patterns and you need this for survival. So, you know, Lion jumps out of the bush. You probably should think it's a lion very fast. Not like, oh, let's just analyze the situation a little bit. (laughs) 
And the second thing is, so first it feels worse than it actually is. And then the second thing, which I also find highly interesting is, is that while you are in the emotion itself, not only does it feel worse, it is also feeling like it is going to last forever or like for a very, very long time. Last. Yeah. And this part really struck a chord with me because we know now from, I think it's sociology research, that how we imagine ourselves to be in the future, just like the next day or in two days, is incredibly difficult for us. It is incredibly difficult for us to feel and understand that we will feel better tomorrow if we feel bad right now. Yeah. And that is interesting because we're really good at kind of analyzing how much we have changed in the past. You know, like how fast the time changes, like how much we have changed and so forth. And there is an inherent weakness as humans to predict the future because of it. Because we're just not good in putting ourselves into our own shoes, ironically, right? Like we think that we can predict the future, but we really can't. Unless we have hard data where, we, you know, like where you can take the actual emotion out of it. So a lot of the stuff is actually advising around emotions. And I also feel like Alexa also said this, by the way, right? So like she also said, like, you know, product coaching. She was wondering at the start, is this about therapy? What are people doing in there? And it kind of is. Yeah. It kind of is. There is not a single week where I did not have some kind of issues that really kept me awake. Yeah. And some of them are ridiculous, you know, by standards of other people, just because of some stuff that I'm dealing with from childhood or some other sure. things. It's just like yep. you sometimes get triggered by something and you're just like, I know I should not feel this way, but my heart tells me a different story. It's worse and it will last forever. So, yep. it's- yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's so interesting how and then when you come out of that to look back into that moment. And it's almost ridiculous to think that I thought that was going to last forever. You know, you go through this, well, how could I have thought that? Because clearly I'm in a different spot now. And that was just a temporary thing, you know? I think also this seems to be prevalent in our space. Again, I shouldn't speak to other, you know, industries and verticals, but I feel like it's especially prevalent in our space. I'm sure, you know, at some point in your career, you went to a lot of startup meetups And these are all driven by everything is great. Everything is fine. You know, the number of startup meetups or startup founders I talked to were, oh, yeah, we're killing it. Everything's great. And then a month later, you know, they announced that they're shutting down. And it's this, we're not allowed to be honest around how things are going because we feel like we have to keep up with our peers and everything that's going on, you know, as opposed to allowing yourself to be honest invulnerable with the reality of the situation, whether that's the macro of how your company is doing as a founder or whether that's, you know, the day and the meeting you're in and and raising your hand and being like, I don't actually know or understand what we're talking about. If you allow yourself to do that, then you can almost more easily avoid this imposter syndrome, you know, and it's easy to say right now, all the things we should do. But obviously when we're in the moment, that is incredibly difficult. There's a very interesting thing here to un, to unpack, I guess. I call this the investor FOMO. So what this usually is, is that you need to present yourself well because you do not want to say something that can haunt you back when you come to a funding round. That's one thing. But like, let's say you have two of these options, right? So like, let's say I can either communicate honestly, I have no clue, or I can communicate like with this perfect image towards the outside. One of the problems that we have also in startup culture, because we try to predict the future, future, right? Like we try to make money with the future. We try to say like where a market is going and then we try to build a product for it, is that it is easy to say that you need to be honest, but there comes a price for it. And the price is accountability. And that accountability is if you say that you don't know something about the market that you're in. So like, let's say you have a sudden realization that you don't know exactly who is buying your product, which is the case for a lot of companies that I'm advising for. They don't really have a clue about their own customers. Some of them are doing a tremendous job, and this is not to knock them. It's just that they never really were faced with this honest assessment because sometimes you just also don't want to hear it. But the moment you hear it and you admit it, that's the first step. But now you have to change it. And this luxury of honesty comes with hard work. Now you need to hustle and now you need to put the work in. And that is uncomfortable, of course, yeah. because that means you have to deprioritize something else. So the problem with honesty is, is that it's even worse if you're being honest, but then you don't change your behavior because then you look like a real fool because you know what the problem is now and you're not doing something. You even admitted to it. And 
that's kind of like the problem that I see that I see is happening. But this is why I love product like growth so much because it's a very honest kind of framework of like, yeah. look, this is what we have. Take us apart and tell us, and we're gonna give you the best product possible. Yeah. I think now I made a complete loop back to product like growth. Yeah, yeah. I love that. But, yeah. <laughs> but but I think that's how I'm thinking about it. Ben, we're nearing the end. We went longer than planned. I'm sorry for that, but I'm very grateful for this conversation. So let me ask you like maybe one last question. Is there some kind of trend or topic that you are extremely passionate about that is maybe a typical or maybe it's typical, it doesn't matter. What are you betting on in the markets today? There's two, and I don't think they're really much of a surprise. I think there's a just AI and how it's going to impact every single product. Being on the ground floor for the last couple of years at Paperspace, where we were selling pickaxes during a gold rush, right? For those that don't know, know Paperspace, GPU cloud and MLOps platform. So, you know, I was on the ground floor watching people build, you know, a lot of these applications that we're seeing out in the market today. I think there's a group of people that are overestimating where AI is going to be in the next 12 and 18 months. But the vast majority of people, I think, are underestimating how it's going to impact every product, you know, in the next 18 to 24 months. So I'm betting on AI in a very large way in the long run. The other piece is I think we're finally seeing this, you know, and I know you talk a lot about the PLG PLS hybrid, you know, McKinsey just acknowledged product-led sales. Better um, late than ever. Exactly. I think it's finally coming into the zeitgeist in the way that it should. It's not one or the other. It's a hybrid of both. And we're going to see a lot more companies in, in the growth stage or entering the growth stage that understand this go-to-market motion. And the way they get there is a lot of what we talked about previously. We're going to be breaking down silos between teams. We're going to be more collaborative between nope. product sales and marketing going forward. And that's something I'm, I'm really excited about. Not much to add, just 100% agreement again. And with that, I'm just going to ask you for the last time, should people contact you? And if so, how should they contact you? Do you want to hear from people? I do want to hear from people. Yes, I'd love to hear from people. I am most readily available on LinkedIn. Benjamin Lamson on LinkedIn, currently residing at DigitalOcean. Amazing. Thank you so much for this conversation. And it was a pleasure having you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is great. Bam. Thank you so much for listening to The Product Tea with Lea. If you don't have enough yet, you can subscribe to my podcast right now at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or you can head to my website, leatharin.com, which is L-E-A-H-T-H-A-R-I-N.com, where you can find much more of my material or just want to work with me. 